All right. Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 9. And let's just read down through uh, verse 7 this morning, and then we're going to, Lord willing, get through the uh, entire chapter, and we'll take communion together this morning. You recall that Jesus, in chapter 8, we looked at him going to the uh, Temple Mount, and he shared and exclaimed that he was the, and is the light of the world. And the confrontation that that brought with the scribes and the Pharisees who didn't believe in him, they struggled with him, and they were jealous of him because you recall back in uh, the fifth chapter, Jesus, when he was there, he healed a, a paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. And that had never been done before. This kind of healing was unknown And certainly the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have the power or the strength to heal anybody. And so when this comes to pass and they find that Jesus is the the cause of all the commotion and all the healing, rather than being happy and and rejoicing that a son had, had come to wholeness in his legs and his body again, rather than be excited about that, they were angry and jealous with him and sought rather to destroy him. And such is true today, isn't it? Whenever somebody claims to be on the Lord's side, there is always a, a stick that's chasing them. And, and this is just par for the course for being a Christian. In fact, it's the cost of discipleship. And that's the title of this morning's message is the cost of discipleship. The cost that it, there is to us, and it's a very small cost if you really consider it in light of everything else. If you consider what Jesus has done for us and the great things that he has done and the great, thing that he's, great things that he's yet to do, when you consider all these things, is it any great thing that we just give our hearts and lives completely to him? It almost seems like an imbalance, and it certainly is, because how could we balance the scales? We, we cannot, and neither should we attempt to, because anything that we do that somehow we can earn our salvation or earn this great heritage that we have, Anything that that is, is blasphemy, (laughs) because there's none good, and we know this. We know this in our hearts. So Jesus, you recall in the very last uh, few verses, well, let's just read the first seven verses. It says, as Jesus passed by, remember he was on the Temple Mount, he saw a man who was blind, noticed from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And notice... I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. 
And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, now go, here's the commandment for the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. He came back seeing. And isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> to receive your sight. And, um, and this miracle that we're looking at this morning is just one of seven. You remember as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've been looking at these. This is the seventh miracle or the seventh sign that Jesus did in the Gospels, or in the Gospel of John specifically. The one prior to this was uh, Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. We looked at that already, but this is the, set, the sixth one of the seven, and it's the healing of this blind man in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And so now notice uh, in the first verse there, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw the man blind from birth. And as I stated, he was already on the Temple Mount where this occurred. And remember, he was just leaving the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember what he said to them. If you just back up to the last few verses of the 8th chapter, what did Jesus say to him? He says, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And we looked at the significance of that phrase, I am. And then they took up stones to throw at him. But notice Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. I mean, how could Jesus be hid? <laughs> you know, the, the Bible says that there is no form or comeliness of him that we should desire him. In, in other words, there wasn't something about Jesus that would point him out and, 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 and you know, out of, a, out of a great group of people, nobody would be able to look and go, that's him. Because he blended in. He, he was very normal looking. In fact, he was, there was nothing about his outside appearance that would scream, you know, I'm the son of God. He was very plain and very um, just like the rest of the people. And so he was very hard to pick out in a crowd. The only way you could find Jesus is find the crowd. And that's where Jesus would be because there would be a crowd always gathering him. And I find it amazing that Jesus wasn't just trying to escape this castigation, if you will, of the Pharisees. He wasn't trying to escape the heat of the moment. He was there, and he was aware of others' needs in spite of his problem that he had there at the Temple Mount. They were getting ready to stone him. Because when he said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, they knew that he was claiming deity. And anyone who is not God who makes that claim certainly is going to have a problem. And, but he was and is God, and therefore he is very qualified. But notice that as he's leaving the temple, as he passes right through the crowd, as they're picking up stones ready to, to throw at him, you know, if it were me, I would just continue walking, maybe even lighten or quicken my steps a little bit and maybe put on my you know, Nike Airs and take off and leave a blaze of dust, you know, because they're going to kill me right? And I'd be so focused about myself, my own self-preservation. But do you see that here? You don't at all. When you look at the very last few verses of chapter 8 and you look at chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw the man. So as he's passing by, he's, he's not worried about his own life. He knew the Father's, he, his life was in the Father's hands. And he knew it wasn't time. 
Jesus wasn't panicked. And yet, in spite of all of that, Jesus continued to care about people. He wasn't just running by trying to escape. And I love that about him. And it reminds me of how I need to be because so often I can be so busy, I can be in such a rush that I sometimes I just forget about people because I'm, I'm thinking about number one, right? <laughs> and newsflash, there's only one who's number one. <laughs> it's him. It's not me. It's not you. But we do. We tend to look after our own needs. But Jesus, at the threat of being killed and stoned, he's passing by and he sees a man. He's completely aware of the needs around him. The the circumstances aren't dictating to him what he should and should not do. He's very much in control. And notice, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, we inaccurately judge when we think that any sickness or malady or even a calamity that someone goes through is the direct of or the direct result of sin uh, or the consequences of sin in our lives. And and whether that's individually or a nation, we wrongfully judge when the when these kind of things happen. Did was it because he, you know, stole the bubblegum out of the store when he was little? Is that why he's he was, you know, is that why this happened to him or you know, what was it, Lord? And we have to remember that this kind of thinking is very dangerous because God even allowed Job, remember, to go through an extremely difficult time and it wasn't because Job had done necessarily something wrong. We knew that Job was a sinner and and, and God knew that, but but God also saw a man in, in whose life this man really loved the Lord and he did all those things that pleased the Lord. There's nothing that we know of that's written in the book of Job that, that was sin, but he was a sinful man. He was born in sin, but yet there wasn't something that he did necessarily that caused all these calamities to come upon them. The devil challenged the Lord and says, you know what? No wonder Job's doing great because you set a hedge around him. He's your favorite. He's the, stu- he's the teacher's pet kind of thing. And, and the Lord says, is that what you think? Well, I know something about Job, Satan, that you don't know. I know this man, you don't know him like I know him because I created him. But I know him, you don't know him. You can do whatever you want to him, only don't take his life. And the devil, because he's only a destroyer, what did he do? He went after him. Took his family away. Took all of his possessions away. And the devil approached him again after Job didn't snap. He didn't cave in and the devil came before the Lord again, it says in chapter 2 of Job. And God says, you know, you can touch his bone, but you can't take his life. In other words, you can afflict sickness on him, but that's the bounds that I'm giving you, Satan. You're not, a, you're not an unshackled dog that you can run after anybody that you please know. You, do you notice that about the Lord and, and, and Satan? He, he doesn't have license to just run after anybody. He has to go through God. He's not a loose agent in the, in the, in the world. He has to ask for permission and, and, and why does God allow that? Certainly to refine us, to reveal to us where we are, where we aren't. And it causes us what? To get on our knees because we're not really tested when things are going well. This man was not tested. He was born that way. He was born blind. There was nothing he could do. He wasn't being tested. The test was already on for him. In 1 Peter it says, In this you greatly rejoice, 
Though now for a little season, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious, notice, than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These things that happen to us, and, and again, we wrongfully judge them. It must be because of some sin. He's crippled because he probably did something when he was younger. And, and isn't it true that when we know somebody, maybe you don't like somebody, and then later on you find out that they got into some trouble, maybe they contact, contracted a disease or have some kind of illness, or you find out they were killed in a car accident, and you knew they were just nasty. Isn't it just like our human hearts? And then we say, you know what? They got what was due them. Have you ever thought that way? Am I the only one? <laughs> you know, when you hear something and all you remember is the evil that they did, and in your heart you're thinking, well, they finally got theirs, right? But see, that's so far away from God's thinking. But when we get sick or when we're diagnosed with some disease that may even take our life ultimately, what are you going to do and how are you going to respond and how are you going to respond to others around you who go through those similar things? How do we respond? It's really important that we grow up. I want to grow up, don't you? I don't want to stay as an, as an infant in the Lord. I want to grow, and, and I think we all do. And the good news is that most of you have known the Lord for quite a long time. And growing is something that's good. It's good for us. God wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to continue eating the Ovaltine. He wants us to go on to solid food and to do better and to grow and to be fruitful and even more fruitful. Notice in verse 3, Jesus answered and he said to the disciples, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now this obviously doesn't mean that his parents and this man weren't sinless, but that this malady in the man's life was not the result of sin or some kind of sin issue. It wasn't. And yet, if we contrast this with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, it's quite a bit different. What did it say? Oh, bear with me here. Where did I go? Oh, I know why. It's the wrong slide. Here, bear with me for one second. I chose the wrong, uh, the wrong thing. No wonder. There we go. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. But notice the man at the, at, the, at the pool of Bethesda, his whole situation was completely different. This man, there was no sin issue, even though he was a sinner. But notice what Jesus said to the man at the pool of Bethesda, which was, and he healed this man on the Sabbath too, just like this man. And Jesus, says, afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple at, the, at Bethesda, and he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come Upon you, And the idea seems to be that the man at the Bethesda, that this ailment was the result of some sin in his life. That is true, it can be. And in the case that we're looking at in chapter 9 today, it is not that case. So we have to be really careful. And yet we do it, because I know that I'm not alone when I feel this way. I know that you felt the same way, and, and maybe we'll continue at some point, but I would encourage you to check yourself when we hear about these things, because we're not... We're not qualified. We're just not qualified to judge these things. I'm not qualified to understand what God is doing in someone else's life. I'm having a hard time just figuring out what he's doing in my own. 
that I don't need to be looking over the fence and going, well, what is he doing? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He goes, what is that to you? Follow me. <laughs> don't worry about John, Peter. You follow me. And I think that's wise counsel for all of us, to not look at each other and size each other up, but rather to say, you know what, Lord, I will follow you. And you're doing something private and intimate in that person's life. It looks a little different than mine. Maybe even look, maybe even challenge me. It may even be worse than my situation. It may be less. Maybe I feel like I deserve to not have to go through what I'm going through, but why do you give that same thing to that person? And it doesn't even look like they did anything to deserve it. But let me ask you, is it anything that we deserve? Is there anything that we deserve? Any good thing that we deserve? We know the answer to that. We don't deserve anything. And so I'm just not qualified. I'm not qualified to understand it. But sometimes it is the case where someone's malady, someone's sickness is the result of sin. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says uh, Paul speaking to the Corinthians concerning their unlawful use of communion, which we're going to take today. And this is kind of an interesting topic to bring up on communion morning. I don't want anybody to be discouraged. But back in the first century, you know, God was starting and he was very serious about why they were taking communion. But it became a drunken orgy. It became a a time of excess, and the people who were really needy were left out of the picture, and it became just a big drug fest, or, you know, they were drinking and and everything. And, And notice what Paul says to them in chapter 11, verse 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man first examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick and among you, and some have even fallen asleep or have died because of their unworthy attitude toward communion. Again, it was it was, some, it, was a, it was an excess. It was something that turned into something ugly instead of something that the Lord wanted it to be. And sometimes it is sin that causes illness or sickness or even death. And again, we can sometimes secretly delight and imagine evil in our hearts when we hear of someone's malady and we think they finally got theirs. But again, we are just not qualified In Proverbs chapter 24, it says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, notice, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. We're just not qualified. Rather, the attitude is when you see somebody going through difficulty, see them going through in sickness, just pray for them. And pray that God would... Make, that, make them aware of what it is. We just, we don't know. Judge nothing before the time. Isn't that what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, therefore, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. And when he returns, who will both bring the light, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come from God He is the judge. He's the righteous judge. He's the only one who is qualified. So verse 4, it says, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Notice, the night is coming when no man can work. 
And Jesus here is not talking about a physical day and a physical night, but rather periods or seasons of spiritual opportunity and freedom. That's why Jesus would throttle his time in Jerusalem, because the more time he spent in Jerusalem, the more the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to put him to death. And he knew this. And so he carefully gauged with the Father. He carefully gauged when he would go there because he knew his time wasn't yet, but there was a time when it would come, and then he'd be all for it. He would face it, like go toward it like flint. But until then, he was very careful. But he's not talking about night and physical day. We know in Romans, what does it say? It says, and do this, knowing the time, Paul says to the Romans, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. And this is really good exhortation for us as Christians in America today. Awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Notice, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. And it's not talking about day and night. It's talking about seasons of opportunity and freedom versus the opposite of those things. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but notice, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And see, that's where we as America, we need to be as Christians, especially in light of everything that's going on in the world right now. We need to understand that the day is far spent. And when the day is finally ending, the Lord's going to call us out. And we're going to see our, we're not going to be exempt from difficult times, understand that. But we're not going to go through that great tribulation, but that doesn't mean that we won't go through some tribulation. In fact, I believe we're going to go through some. And then when the day is far spent, then God is going to call us up. And we are going to rise and we will be changed and we will meet him in the air and forever we'll be with him. But then the night of the world comes upon it. When there's very little opportunity, it's going to be a period of darkness unlike any other period in history. We've looked at that when we were going through Revelation. But the day is quickly passing. And if this is the case, then how much more serious should we be? How much more should we put off those unfruitful works of darkness and rather put on the armor of light and do those things that we know are pleasing to the Lord? I want that, don't you? I, I'm really tired. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, we all would admit, usually people sin not because they hate it, but they sin because they love it, Right? We don't sin because we don't like it. We sin because we love it, whatever it is. It could be your vice. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be drugs. Whatever it is. But then afterwards, don't you feel like gum on the bottom of shoe? <laughs> you feel horrible. And, and then we test out the, 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 the Scripture where it says the wages of sin is death. We test it out every time because when we do it, we realize that there's just a disaster waiting for us. There's always a consequence for that sin. And after a while, you know, when you get older, and you know I'm getting older, and, and I know all of us are, don't you get to the point where you're just like, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of I know that if I do this, this is going to happen, or I've got it, I've got it coming. It's coming. The consequence is coming. I know what's coming. And then you start thinking about that before you do whatever it is that you know is sinful. And there comes a point in your life where you're like, you know, I've had enough. 
I've had enough. And the Spirit of God is working in you to make you hate it. Because until you hate it, you probably won't change. I pray that God gives us a very great distaste for sin in our own life. That we will just hate it so much, we will be so glad to cave in and say, Lord, I'm not going to go there. I've been down that road too many times. And aren't you glad of his faithfulness, of his willingness to forgive you when you confess your sin? And listen to me, when you fall into sin and, 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 you, and you've done it over and over and over again, you keep confessing it and you keep asking the Lord to forgive you. And what is the, it, the truth is that he will forgive you. But you keep and give, ask him for the gift of repentance. And when you fall again, you confess it, and you get back up again, and you fight it, and you continue to fight it. you got to continue fighting it. So Jesus, in verse 5 here in our text, says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And obviously because of this, this uh, chapter that we're looking at really connects us with chapter 8 because he said the very same thing in, in, chap- or in verse 12 of chapter 8. Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees when they brought that woman who was caught in adultery, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And Jesus, obviously, giving physical sight back to this man who was born blind, in this he illustrates not only his power over physical light, and physical sight that he can give, but the spiritual insight, the spiritual sight that he and the Word of God brings to us. And we're going to see that toward the end of the chapter. And what are the benefits of light? There's some great benefits of light. Number one, without light, we can't see our way through the darkness. But thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word, the word of God, not only Jesus himself, but the very word that we hold in our hands, the word of God, Jesus as well. He is the living word. And then we have his written word here before us. And without light, we stumble over everything. Try getting up in the middle of the night when all the lights are turned out and you're stumbling, guys. You're stumbling down to the refrigerator to get a snack at midnight. You're going in to get that lemon chiffon, uh, get another piece of that lemon chiffon pie that your mother, or that your wife, your mother, unless she may live with you, I don't know. But um, Either way, you're eating pie. You could care less and you stumble your toe. So without light, and I'm being facetious here, but without even spiritual light, we're stumbling over everything. Without light, we don't even grow spiritually. We need the light of God. And light, what does it do? It exposes and it makes everything manifest. You know, it's like when you, you, know, when you go scuba diving, if you're a snorkeler and you're down in the keys or whatever and you're snorkeling, you'll notice that you know, the light, as it's hitting the ground or hitting the ocean, if you're only, uh, a, you know, maybe five or six feet deep of the water and it's really clear, the coral looks beautiful. It's stunning in all of its colors, but you go out to where you're 50 or 60 feet deep and all of a sudden the color starts to fade. The color fades because there's no light. The light can only transfer so far down into the ocean and then it starts to fade. It starts to break down and without light you can't see the vivid colors and all the fish and all the intricacies of all that beauty that God has created. So light, it makes manifest. It makes it shows things for the way they really are. There's no smoke, there's no mirrors. I love that about the Lord. So verse 6, when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the man of the blind man with the clay. And I, I think it's interesting that he spat on the ground and he made clay. And wasn't Jesus able to just speak the word and for this man to receive his sight? Is he able just to say, 
receive your sight. I mean, he, he could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't do that. And I find that it's interesting that Jesus never does the same thing the same way twice in a row. He does things a little different. He never seems to do the exact same thing. You remember when he, heard, when he healed another blind man. It says that when he came to Bethesda, this is Mark chapter 8, that they brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit in his eyes, or on his eyes, he spat on his eyes. How do you think about that? I think that only the Son of God I would want to spit in my eyes. Like, Lord, you can do whatever you want. You can pull my hair out if it, if it works. You know, I don't care what you got to do. You can tear my leg off, whatever you got to do. But he, he took the blind man, he spat in his, on his eyes, and he put his hands on him, and he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. With this man, it seems interesting that he used the dirt of the clay, that which God had cursed, the very ground that this man was made from, right? We were, we, we, God says that he formed the dust of the earth and he breathed life into it. He resuscitated and, and made the breath of life come into that thing, into man, into Adam. And his name, literally Adam, means man from the ground, from the very elements. And Jesus takes... And you recall what happened after the fall. God speaking to Adam said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, notice, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat it. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. But if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else given time and opportunity. But notice, cursed is the ground. Jesus took the very ground that was cursed. And again, I love the picture of this because what is he doing? He's taking his very own DNA and his own saliva and he's spitting on the ground. He's taking that clay and, and putting it in his hands and he's putting it on the guy's eyes. And Jesus could have just said, now open your eyes. But he didn't. He told him to go do something. There was a condition here. Unlike the other man, the other man just said, okay, open your eyes again, and he saw clearly no. What does he tell him? He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. And my question to you this morning is, why did Jesus, here's the temple mount right up here, and then why would he make this blind man who still had this clay on his eyes walk all the way down this colonnade and stumble over everybody, probably very excited, and then finally come to this pool of Siloam down here? Do you realize how long of a, of a trek that is for a blind man? And yet Jesus told him to do it. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus ask this man who is already blind and can't see but he, I'm sure all of his other senses were in tune and he could walk, he could probably, you know, knew where he was going. Couldn't he just open his eyes? But no, he says, now you go and you wash in the pool of Siloam and you will receive your sight. It required faith on his part, didn't it? It required faith on his part. He had to believe and there was some effort involved in this because he's going to be up there on the southern end of the Temple Mount. He's got to walk all the way down through the colonnade, through all the bustling, busy activity 
And he's got to walk all the way down there to the pool of Siloam and then wash. And then by that time, Jesus was gone. He had to exercise some faith, didn't he? Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had sat that, uh, that had seen that he was blind, they said, Is not this he who sat and begged? And they become so used to seeing him in that condition begging that they didn't even recognize him now. Have you ever noticed that? There, there, there's some things in life that are just like the same every single day, and you get so used to them being in the same spot, doing the same thing, that when something changes, anything, you're like, who are you? I'm so, I'm so used to seeing you here begging. You've been doing it since you were young, and, and you've been doing it every day. But can you imagine what it would have been like to finally see? From the time you're born, you can't see. You're growing up. And you're thinking that everyone else maybe is the same way. You learn, you learn to get around by feeling around. Your senses, all your other senses are at, at high pitch because that's all you've got to navigate in this world. You've never seen color. You've never seen your mother's face. You've never seen your father. You've never seen a flower in bloom. You've never seen the, 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 the blue sky and the clouds. You've never seen any of that. And then all of a sudden, pow. Can you imagine the man? I, I, I love to think about this. As Jesus rubbed that in his eyes, and he certainly knew about the other man in Bethesda, and he's thinking to himself, I'm going to be healed. He's like, whatever I've got to do, I'm going to obey him, and I'm going to get to that pool. If I've got to crawl on my knees on glass, thank God he didn't have to, but I will do anything I can to get to that pool, and I know that when I wash my eyes that I am going to see. Can you imagine the excitement as he's bustling past people, pushing them out of the way? They're going, what's up with you, man? And he's, he's like, get out of my way, get out of my way. I'm going to see, I'm going to see. You've got to believe that was the case because he had never seen a thing ever. Do you understand that? And then to finally wash in the pool and then to open his eyes and, and be like, you're so used to walking in the dark. You're so used to feeling your way around, your eyes and your ears, or your, I'm sorry, all your other senses are working at full capacity just to keep you on the right path. And now you can see and you're like, oh my gosh, the colors. I've heard your voice for years and now I see you. He's walking up the colony. He's probably screaming. He's probably rejoicing. Seeing colors looking up at the sky and seeing the puffy clouds and the blue sky seeing the food and the animals and all these things. What an adjustment. What a shock. And so some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. And he said, it is. I am he. And therefore, verse 10, they said to him, where were your, where, or how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. He didn't even know. And if this were to occur today, you've got to believe the pastor or the evangelist, the television evangelist would be there with him, with their arm around him. Yep, healed him. <laughs> you know, and the, and, the, and the news, Channel 8 and 10 and 12 and 13 and Fox and even CNN would show up. And, and they would all be there, right? And the, and, the, and the evangelist would be going, yep, did that. <laughs> got that gift, you know. I got a new book out, by the way. But no, Jesus wasn't like that. He was nowhere to be found. 
He wasn't looking. He, he did this. It was a private moment. Don't you love a tender moment? I love a tender private moment. And that's what Jesus did for this man. But they brought him, verse 13, who was formerly was blind to the Pharisees, and now it was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. And then when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and, um, and so then the Pharisees, verse 15, they asked him, saying to the man who was healed, they asked him again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. How simple it is. How simple it is. You know, God is not complicated. He, it's very simple. And everybody else wants to make it complicated. Well, did he, did he make you go through the 10 steps, brother? Did you have to do this and do that? And did you have to make sure you read, read the Mishnah? And then did you, did you get down and genuflect and, and, and then go through all these motions? No, I, I didn't do anything. In fact, I didn't even ask him to do it. He just came. And he did it. He said, go wash. And I did. I saw. Easy. Simple. <laughs> and therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath. He's not of God. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a great division among them. Notice, instead of just rejoicing with the man, I mean, think of it. When somebody hasn't seen all of their life, they've never known sight at all, and then he comes to sight, he's, he's looking around and he's almost barely able to keep his balance because now he can see things. His brain is like working overtime trying to process all this stuff. And instead of being excited and going, my goodness, this is so awesome. Let's rejoice. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a big celebration and give praise to God. Let's get the guitars out and let's worship the Lord. No, they were the biggest sourpusses on the planet. Can't believe that happened. Then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, I, I don't know, he's, he, he's a prophet, I guess. Didn't even know Jesus really that well. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Notice, until they called his parents of him who had received his sight. They didn't even want to believe the miracle, and um, they didn't even want to believe the guy was blind. They thought somehow there was some kind of setup here. But it was blatantly obvious, blatantly obvious. What a tragedy this was. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? But these guys were just long in the face, a bunch of Eeyores. Verse 19, and they asked him, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Why then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was indeed born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. And they were afraid. Notice, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he is Christos, the Messiah, God in the flesh, that he would put them out of the synagogue, that the Jews would put them out of the synagogue. Isn't it true that what, what man can't make you do out of your own volition, they can get you to do out of fear? Aren't we seeing it? Aren't we living it right now? We're living it. What they couldn't make us do out of our own volition, now they're going to use fear to manipulate us. And, they, and, and nothing is new under the sun. The Proverbs tells us that the, that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Jesus said, 
I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast you into hell. I say, rather fear him. I, I would agree to that. I would rather fear God who has control over where my eternal salvation is, where it's going to be. Isaiah says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose hearts is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be afraid of their insults. Therefore, his parents said to him, verse 23, he's of age, ask him. And so they again called the man who was born blind, and they said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know. This is all that he did know, that though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that the hymn that we sung this morning by John Newton? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And you can just see them gnashing at their teeth. Just, you know, I love when Gail Irwin, you guys remember Gail Irwin? I remember the faces that he used to make. He's like, <laughs> you know, and that, that's, I can just see them doing that. Just so upset. And I love that this man, he was the only one in his right mind, this blind beggar, and he was schooling them, wasn't he? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. And we know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we do not know where he is from, yet they should have known. They should have known who Jesus was. When he started making these claims, when they started him, they should have been looking into his, into his uh, pedigree. They should have been looking and finding out where he lived and then comparing it with the Scriptures. Had they done that, they would have go, uh, I think this is the Son of God. I think this is the Messiah. And of course it was. So the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. And now, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, notice, he hears him. Since the world began, notice this, this is very important. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This had never happened before. This was a genuine miracle if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And again, what an amazing to uh, testimony. He, he, again, he schooled these hypocrites. He schooled them, took them, to, took them to town, took them to college, took them out to the shed. They answered and said unto him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. The fact of the matter was that he was teaching them, but their hearts had grown cold and hard, and they not only reviled Jesus, but now he is the next target. He would be reviled by them. He is guilty by association, and this is the cost of discipleship for most people. For most of us, this is the cost of discipleship. Paul spoken to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He said, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, and what persecutions I endured. And out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. But notice, yes, 
and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You're not going to be on the news. You won't be applauded necessarily by your family and friends. You won't be applauded by those co-workers of yours. They don't understand. It's spiritually discerned. They don't understand it. and So don't expect them to clap. I, I, I remember when I got saved, I thought my family would be like, oh, that is so wonderful, you know, and put their arms around me and cry with me, and I'd be like, oh, I did. I got saved, Mom. And, you know, I wish that were the case, but it wasn't. And many of you have experienced the same thing. Now that you're a Christian, ooh, Target. You might as well wear a T-shirt with a big bullseye on it because everything is coming your way. Not only from the people that love you until, you know, and eventually they get used to you and you're like, oh, we put up with you. But you have a big target on your chest from the devil. He just loves to throw those fiery darts. You want to be called a Christian? Are you willing to suffer the price? Are you willing to be guilty by association? Are you going to go through the things that Jesus went through? And let me suggest to you, family of God, don't be discouraged when you go through difficulty because you're a child of God. Don't find it crazy when these things happen to you. If the world hates you, it says in John 15, that you know that it hated me before it hated you, Jesus said. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. John would also tell us in 1 John 3, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It doesn't mean that we are to take it personally because we are one of Christ and the world will hate us as well. And isn't it true that our natural inclination is just to fight back? You know, after all, we're American. We fight back. And the flesh wants to fight back. When somebody does something wrong, you're a Christian. Oh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, holier than thou. You know, you hear those kinds of things. And you want to just level them, right? You want to get in their face. You want to get on their case. But yet, God has called us to love our enemies. What did he say in Matthew 5? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust, For if they love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? You know, so we need to love our enemies. And I tell you, that's a really hard thing to do. And you all know this. Because every day we're confronted with things and we get discouraged. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves hating. And I really have to check my own heart. Honestly, I've never been challenged in this way more so than in the last year and a half. It's really broken my heart, to be honest with you, because I realize how ugly I can get inside. And my wife can attest to that. I take out a lot of my frustrations at home, not on them, but they they hear my grumbling sometimes. I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. I'm angry about what's going on. And it's very easy to hate. It's very easy to get angry. See, it's okay to be angry and sin not, but I think I get angry and I sin. I don't punch holes through walls. I don't throw things. I don't abuse other people in my house, but I do get bent, and I do get frustrated. I'll be honest with you. And now I really need to face these things. 
more than I ever have. Like, Lord, give me a new heart. I actually pray that. I'm like, Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a new heart. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Remember when Peter and John, when they were arrested on the Temple Mount the second time, and they went before the Sanhedrin and they, they threatened them, saying, don't, don't teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And what did they say in verse 29 of Acts 5? Peter and other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We're going to obey God rather than men. He told us to share. We're going to continue to share. And notice, they, they, they beat them. And Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, he said, you know what? If this is of God, you can't do anything against it, guys. Speaking to the Pharisees. If it's of God, you're wasting your time. But if it's not of God, this thing's going to fizzle out before long, but if it's of God, be careful that you don't find yourself working against God. And so after the apostles, after they had beat them, they commanded that they should speak no more in the name of Jesus. And so they departed, notice this, from the presence of the council, rejoicing, what? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This man who had received his sight, he's going to be suffering now. They're going to kick him out of the synagogue and he's going to be kicked out and he's going to be ostracized. But yet he knows Christ. He's going to be born again and this man can see and he's like, you know what? I'll gladly leave all of that behind to be with him. That's all I care about. These guys can go away. I'm going with Jesus. You can give me all the world, but give me Jesus. Isn't that this hymn that we sing? So Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Notice Jesus wasn't even upset that he was thrown out. He didn't go and go to him and say, Oh, it's so such a sad thing. I'm so sorry you got kicked out of the synagogue. What's it like? So sad. No, Jesus is like, I'm glad you left. I'd leave too. I would leave too. Jesus said this about the Pharisees. He says, they are blind leaders in Matthew 15. These are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Jesus said, do you believe that I am the Son of God? And he answered and said unto him, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Can you imagine the smile on this man's face? He didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't know who he was. All he knew is what, he, what happened, and he washed, and he saw. And now he's getting castigated. He's getting the rumpus from everybody else. <laughs> and Jesus finally meets up with him privately. I'm sure there wasn't a big crowd around. Jesus met with him, and he says, Do you believe that I am the Son of God? Or do you believe in the Son of God? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? It's me. It's me. And can you imagine the guy? just looking up and going, and tears welling up in his eyes. Never thought I'd see you. I don't know who, who you were, what you, how, how'd you do this? I don't even know. I don't even care. But the love coming through the eyes of Christ to this man, the compassion that was shown to him, he says, I believe. And you notice he worshiped him. He worshiped him. 
In Romans it says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This man did that very thing. He believed and he saw. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. The idea behind this is that Jesus came to reveal himself to the world, didn't he? And that through him we might be saved who were living and walking in darkness. But Jesus also knew that there were those who did claim that they knew and they, that they follow God, and yet they did not, and they would be made blind. The Pharisees, the ones who claimed to have all the spiritual knowledge and, and to have all of the, the pedigrees and all the right stuff, Jesus said, you're blind. You should know. But because you're in this, 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 this role of, of being a leader and a teacher in Israel, now you are culpable and yet you should know who I am, but because you've rejected me, now you are blind. And the blind man from birth, who never saw physically, not only did he receive his natural sight, but what happened? He received spiritual sight. He received eyes that could see. And now he's born again. Isn't it a funny thing? That all these Pharisees, these scribes, they had worked all their life, I mean, stressing and reading and, and going through all this hard labor to be where they're at and supposed to know who Jesus was, and yet they didn't know him at all. And then you got this beggar who was blind from birth. Nobody cared about him. He was just an offscouring of the earth. Nobody cared about him. They just kicked kick dust at him when they walked by. And yet he receives his sight, and he gets born again. And he's in so much better position. He could actually take over that school of their learning because he knew more at that moment than all the scribes and the Pharisees ever knew. They knew, he knew the love and the grace of God and his heart was changed. Unlike them, they walked around like they had lemons in their mouth. You know? Straining at everything and being critical. Verse 40, then some of the Pharisees who were with him, they heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? <laughs> I would love to see the, the look on Jesus' face when the Pharisees said that to him. Are we blind also? What do you think? Just to see that, I, I don't know, I wonder if he did smile or maybe he just looked at them very seriously, which is probably the case because of what he said. He says, if you were blind... You would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Therefore, your sin remains. You claim to see, and you should have seen spiritually, but your, your hardness of heart, you've, your hardness of heart, you don't even see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, but even if our gospel, Paul tells the Corinthians, even... If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those, those whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And, and these men were supposed to know, and yet they did not. So, let's ask the Lord to give us spiritual sight. 
I don't know if any of us are blind here this morning. If, I, if you were, I probably would know about it. But we can all see physically, but are we seeing spiritually? Do we have our eyes open? Are we aware of what's going on? Are we aware of the signs of the times? Are our eyes wide open to see? And we really need to, at this time in the church's history, more than ever, we need to be seeing clearly. And if you're going to see clearly, are you going to see clearly if you continually fill your mind with things of no profit? Are you going to see clearly if you're filling your mind with things that you read out or watch off of YouTube? Or the things that you see on Twitter or the things that you see on the news? And you fill those things, and all those things are made to just make you angry and hate, showing you the things that the other side has done and what they're doing. It just fills you with hate. I need to have my eyes cleansed again. I need to have my heart cleansed again. I need to have my heart softened and that my eyes, my eyes, my spiritual eyes would be wide open and clear again. Are you ready for that? Do you desire that? I do. I'm tired. I'm hurting. Like all of you, I want that. I need that. I want to have that light and that spring in my step once again. Remember that time? Do you remember the way you felt even before COVID? Remember the year before COVID in 2019, before all this happened? Things just seemed to be in a much better place. And yet they weren't, of course. It's all relative, I guess. But folks, let's open our eyes. Let's no longer slumber. As it told us in the Scripture, as Jesus said, the day is far spent and the night is coming. We need to walk as children of light and put on Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh. I would encourage you to do that. We're going to take communion.